Well, good morning, church. My name is Doug, one of your pastors here, and it's a joy to be able to be with you this morning to worship with you and to open God's Word. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, and I sure hope that you do, to take them out and open them up to John chapter 21. This morning we'll be spending most of our time there in John chapter 21, specifically in verses 1 through 19. John 21, verses 9 through, sorry, verses 1 through 19. While you're turning, uh, turning your Bibles to that passage, just want to take an opportunity real quick this morning just to join Lauren and wishing moms here especially just a happy Mother's Day. This is a special day. Um, today's a special day, and um, just as, as we honor our moms and the moms who are in our lives, I can personally say that I am very grateful for the three moms that the Lord has placed in my life, and I can think of no more shaping and sanctifying influences in my life than those three women um, God has given them to me as a gift, and I'm very grateful for them. Um, we recognize that being this morning, that being a mother is no small responsibility, that it is a tremendous calling. We also know that it comes, as it comes as a great joy, it also requires tremendous work, demands incredible sacrifice, but it can also include lots of disappointment and a lot of regrets. For some, this is a day that can be painful. We know that. Maybe there's some that are here this morning that are grieving the loss of a, of a child or maybe the waywardness of a child. Maybe there's some this morning that are considering still hopes that are unrealized. And so for some today, we recognize can be a painful and difficult day. My prayer for us today is that regardless of um, what Mother's Day means to you, is that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, that our hearts would be encouraged, that our faith would be strengthened, and that our hope would be renewed. Just as I say these words, I look into a room, and the truth is, as I mentioned earlier, I have three moms that the Lord has blessed me with. Um, but really the truth is, I see a room full of spiritual mothers that the Lord has blessed me with as well. And I am very, very, very grateful for that. And as a church, we have a lot to be grateful for. Think of the women in this church and how God has used them um, in my life and in our lives and has made us the church that we are. We have a lot to celebrate today and to be thankful for, okay? So this morning, we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. And we're in a series where we are considering the resurrection and how the resurrection gives shape to virtually every aspect of our life, specifically sort of the lens of our life that we are going to hold underneath the light of the resurrection is this aspect of service, of ministry. How does the resurrection give shape to how we actively serve in ministry, okay? That's the question we'll be exploring this morning in John chapter 21. So I'll, I'll read the passage in its entirety, and then I'll open our time in prayer, okay? This is verse 1, John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. 
For some of us, we need to recognize that no is a complete sentence. We see it right there in God's word. No. No fish. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. They were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we know that this word is eternal. We know that it is true, Lord. And we also know that it is incredibly useful for us. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see what is clearly here in the text, Lord. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to be a people who are shaped by this eternal and true word this morning. Lord, we love you, and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite professors in college was a professor by the name of Kenneth Kuntz. He was a professor here at the University of Iowa, and he was a professor in religious studies, and for, um, I had a class with him. Uh, he, he taught a class on biblical archaeology. It was the final semester of my uh, career at the University of Iowa, and uh, it was a small discussion class. He was uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal teacher. I didn't know him at all at the time, but um, just after a few days of sitting at his feet, just learning from this man, um, it was pretty evident to me that he was a follower of Jesus, that he was a Christian, and it was pretty unusual, at least here at the University of Iowa and the Religious Studies Department, to have a Christian professor. Uh, but you could just tell by his, by, quite honestly, the things that stuck out to me, stood out to me about this professor was just his sheer kindness. He was just such a kind man, such a kind man. The two things that stuck out to me was his kindness and two, the fact that he knew his students. 
He knew his students well. He, he cared about what was going on in their lives. He, he would start off oftentimes class with discussion and things would come up in, in students' lives. And, and it was almost as if he was using the class as an opportunity to even just care for those that were sitting in his classroom. He was really a remarkable professor. Now, he taught at the university for years. I think he's retired now and has been retired for some time, I believe. Um, it wasn't until maybe a couple years ago when I decided to pursue uh, a master's in seminary. Um, as I applied for a seminary, I needed a letter of recommendation. I needed a reference to get into seminary from a professor. I had been like about 10 years since I was at the University of Iowa, and I was thinking to myself, I don't, I can barely even remember any of my professor's names. How am I going to find somebody that can like say what kind of person, what kind of student I was? Well, I thought, I'll take a stab, kind of a shot in the dark, and I'll email Professor Coons. And sure enough, I did, and... And his email back to me was remarkable. And it stands out to me to this day. It was remarkable because it was a, my email to him was very brief. It gave him every opportunity to say, no, I don't even know who you are. I'm not gonna recommend you to anything. But he emailed me back and he recounted for me my face as I sat in his class, what he remembers about my face and what he remembers about just my studentship in his classroom. In a couple of lines, it showed me that this man who had taught and instructed thousands of students throughout his career at the University of Iowa knew me. He knew me. It was remarkable, and it, it strikes me to this day. When I read John 21, verses 1 through 19, as we look at this passage today, these two things strike me about Jesus, about our Savior. As we consider this interaction that he has after his resurrection with his disciples, we see him. He just leaps off the page, comes alive to us in this passage as a kind, gentle, loving Savior who knows his sheep, who knows them. This is a remarkable passage here found at the end of the Gospel of John. It's a remarkable passage. In fact, many think that, you know, that chapter 20 would have really been sort of the perfect end to the Gospel of John. Chapter 20 would have been just the great way to end this gospel. We have this wonderful story of Thomas. Jesus appears to the disciples two times. The first time Thomas is not there in the presence and, and declares that unless he insists, unless he sees visible evidence of the risen Lord Jesus, that he will not believe. I will never believe, he says. Eight days later, Jesus supernaturally appears to the disciples again and gives him just what he's looking for and declares to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And, and, and Thomas in response says, my Lord and my God. It's really a remarkable story. It's a phenomenal story. It's a great story to finish a gospel on. It's fantastic. Then in, in verse 31, you get a wonderful summary statement of what John was trying to do throughout his entire gospel. In verse 31, it says this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You get a thesis statement of what John was trying to accomplish throughout his, own, his, his whole entire book. It only makes sense that John would come to a conclusion in chapter 20. But he doesn't. He gives us chapter 21. And it's really a remarkable, remarkable gift to us. And this morning, as we consider these verses, the big idea that we'll see in the text is this. This is what we discover from the risen Jesus Christ. 
That it is the priority of the risen Christ to ensure that his people are properly fed. I'll say it one more time. That it is the priority of the risen Christ to ensure that his people are properly fed. Maybe to say it a different way, Jesus is the divine, divine chef and has prepared a glorious meal and invites us to feast at his table free of charge. That's what we see here in John chapter 21. This story, these two sort of stories follow sort of a similar theme to what John does throughout his gospel. He gives a, tells the story of a, a description of a miracle or a sign, and then he provides an explanation for that sign. What is the spiritual significance? What is, what is this miracle ultimately pointing to? He follows a similar pattern here in John chapter 21. And it gives us a window into what's next, how the resurrection would ultimately redirect the course of the disciples' lives in such a way that they would eventually set in motion a movement that would change the world. He's pointing the disciples not just to what is next, but how to pull it off. And in these two separate sections, these two different sections that are connected, we see two themes emerge. In the first one, the focus is on, verses 1 through 14, the focus is on refreshment. Refreshment specifically from Christ. And in the second section, verses 15 through 19, we see the focus is on restoration of Peter. So refreshment and restoration. We'll look at these two and the heading I'm going to put over each of them. You could use that word, refreshment and restoration. But we'll look at first at the miracle, the feeding of the disciples. And simply two points we'll have this morning are the miracle and the meaning. Refreshment and restoration, okay? So, verses 1 through 14, the feeding of the disciples. Refreshment from Jesus is the focus of these 14 verses. Jesus appears to his disciples a third time in the Gospel of John since his resurrection. And the reason that he has come to them, it is clear in the text. He's coming them to refresh them. He's coming them to, to them to feed them. The risen Christ reveals himself to the seven disciples here by the Sea of Tiberias, another name for the Sea of Galilee. This is not surprising that we would find the disciples here at the Sea of Galilee. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, they are instructed to go before the Lord to Galilee. So here they are on the sea. These professional fishermen are out all night and find themselves having caught no fish. Jesus appears to them on the shore, and miraculously, he fills their nets with so many fish that they can barely, barely haul in the catch. Then they arrive on land, and they find Jesus has a fire going for them and a hot breakfast waiting for them. When you read this story, I'll be the first to admit, it reads very unusual. The, the writing style reads a little differently than the rest of the book of John. It is unusual, and for us, it should stand out. It should cause our attention to, to focus in on it. And as we read the story, the character who sort of comes to the surface as the focus of the story outside of Jesus is Peter himself. When you, when you read it, you just can't miss how active Peter is in the text, verse 3, he's the one who the leader leads, declares, I'm going fishing, and the rest follow. In verse 7, when Jesus appears, it is Peter who puts on his outer garments. It would have been normal for them to be fishing naked. So as he sees Jesus and recognizes who it is off on the shore, he puts his clothes on, thank God, before he jumps into the water to go and greet and fall into the arms of Jesus. Verse 7, he, he, he puts on his outer garments and jumps into the water. In verse 11, he, he hauls the net ashore all by himself. 
As you read this story, it becomes evident that Peter is just, is just buzzing full of activity. And it's no small thing that, that Peter is, is not just sort of the, the center of activity here in the final chapter of, of John's, uh, John's gospel. It's also clear that he is a man who's marked by activity. Here, here is a man, one of, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, in the hours leading up to Jesus' death, completely abandons his friend, his Savior, turns his back on him, denies him, not once, but three times. P- Peter finds himself suddenly back at, at the very activity that he had previously been defined by, a fisherman. Having previously denied Jesus, now he's back at it. He's fishing once again. Having let down Jesus previously, he feels, you would could only imagine, maybe a little unsure of himself. Maybe not quite sure where he stands in the grand scheme of things. What purpose does this man who turned his back on Jesus have? Having failed Jesus in such a public way, what is Peter supposed to do now? So he falls back into what Peter knows, lacking direction and purpose. Peter goes back to fishing. A number of commentators will point out what we can plainly see just by reading the text is that Peter appears to be restless. Appears to not just be restless, he appears to be marked by restlessness. Restlessness is not a unique thing and not a unique attribute to Peter. In responding to a lack of purpose or a lack of direction in life with restlessness is actually, I would say, normative behavior, especially in this country. Many of you may know of Alexis de Tocqueville. He's a French aristocrat. Spent 10 months traveling America in 1831 with the intent really of studying the prison, the penitentiary system here in the United States. But he actually did extensive travels throughout the time and spent very little time in the prisons and more time just making social observations of this land and, and where they are and where, where, how far they had come and what, what is ahead of them possibly. So he makes tremendous amount of observations and reflects on the state of the United States in 1831. And many of us may be aware of and perhaps have even read his Democracy in America. He published two volumes, one in 1835 and one in 1840, that summarize these observations and reflections of American life in the Jacksonian era. One of the chapters in Tocqueville's Democracy in America is dedicated to exploring this question. And it's amazing, when I read this question, it's amazing that this was a question he was asking in 1831. Listen to the question. Why are Americans so restless in the midst of their prosperity? He tells of his observations and he summarizes them like this. In the United States, a man builds a house in which to spend his old age and he sells it before the roof is on. He plants a garden and lets it just as the trees are coming into bearing. He brings a field into tillage and leaves other men to gather the crops. He he embraces a profession and gives it up. He settles in a place which soon afterwards leaves to carry his changeable longings elsewhere. It's amazing that that is what described American life in 1831. 
Because I quite honestly think it doesn't quite differ from 2021. It seems to be a very, very similar description. He says this, at first sight there is something surprising. This is what catches his attention. Something surprising in this strange unrest of so many happy men, restless in the midst of abundance. The spectacle itself, however, he says, is as old as the world. The novelty is to see a whole people furnish an exemplification of it. What catches his attention is not that restlessness exists, but that there is an entire population of people, an entire nation, which according to his observation seems to be marked by restlessness. David Myers, in sort of a similar modern-day observation of American culture, calls this the American, the great American paradox. How can we be so unhappy in a land of so much, such abundance? See, the truth is, when we find ourselves in a place maybe similar to Peter, where we feel like we lack direction or lack purpose, looking in life for what is next and unsure of ourselves, it is all too tempting over and over and over again to, fill, to do just what Peter did, fill our lives with activity. Activity in our life. We can even do this in the church. Unsure of what the purpose is, what it looks like to serve and to be a, a member of a church or, or just a follower of Jesus. We can think, we can easily replace faithfulness with just activity. And this is what Peter is doing. What's the result when we do that? Well, it's a similar result to what Peter's restlessness gets him in the nets before Jesus comes along. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Look at verse three. What are, what are they out there fishing all night and what do they get? They catch nothing. So what then is the answer to our restlessness? If you're here this morning and you're lacking direction or purpose, meaning in your life, what is your answer? Wh what do you look for? Where do you go? Well, we see the answer here. What is, we consider our need. This is a need that every one of us has. Let's consider the provision. What's the answer to Peter's restlessness, his lack of direction and, and purpose in life? Look at verse four. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. I love how the, the NIV puts it. Early in the morning, Jesus. What's the answer to Peter's restlessness? What's the answer to our restlessness? Early in the morning, Jesus. Jesus intervened. The answer to Peter's restlessness and lack of purpose and direction was not more activity. It was throwing himself into the arms of Jesus. See, in our culture, I, and I, I sometimes can do this too, we can wear busyness or activity as a badge. Right? I don't know if you guys do this, but how was your week? How was your life? And pretty soon, within about two minutes, everybody's just really busy. The conversation like, oh, it's so busy. Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm not trying to downplay our busyness, but the reality is I think oftentimes we can put that up as if it's a virtue that we aspire to. Busyness. Oh, I'm busy. Look at my badge. I'm busy. Right? That is the American way of doing things. That, that, that we can bring value and meaning and make it seem like matter by showing how much activity we are involved in. 
Let it not be. Let let it not be. In fact, that is what leads to our ruin oftentimes and our exhaustion. Jesus says, let me be the one who gets to define you. Let me be the one who gives you direction. He comes to Peter, comes to the disciples. Peter throws himself into his arms. The answer to the heavy heart of Peter was not more activity. The answer to Peter's restlessness was not more activity. The answer to Peter's regrets in life was not signing up for more stuff to do. It was going to Jesus. It was going to Jesus and being fed by Jesus. This is what Jesus does. Chapters before, Jesus was very deliberate in his serving of the disciples. In John 13, in the scene of the upper room, the meal that was served for the disciples as he washes their feet and serves them that way. Ultimately, he will serve them by dying on the cross. We know in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't it remarkable? This should just strike us that Jesus is preoccupied in this passage. What is he preoccupied with? Feeding the disciples. With refreshing them. Verse 5, children, do you have any fish? Verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You will find some. Verse 9, he has a charcoal fire. Fish laid on top, ready to serve. Verse 10, he says, bring some fish that you've caught. We'll give you some more fish. Verse 12, The invitation, come, have breakfast. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Jesus, in verses 1 through 14, is determined to feed his disciples. The invitation, all they have to do is come to him, right? Just come to him. What a picture, the risen Lord Jesus, obsessing about ensuring that his disciples are properly fed. My goodness, I hope, I don't know what your life is like right now, but for me as I read these verses and I step back and just think about my life, I mean, this is what Jesus wants for us. He is inviting us to come to him and to feast. He is determined to ensure that we are properly fed. Why? Number two, what's the meaning? Because the disciples are then called to go and feed his sheep. Why is it so important that these disciples have fish in their belly? Because they are about to be sent to feed others. If the theme of verses 1 through 14 was refreshment from Jesus... The theme of the section that follows, verses 15 through 19, is the restoration of Peter. The disciples are fed. Peter is reinstated and recommissioned in the following section. The other disciples in verses 15 through 19 begin to sort of fade into the background. And and the setting is there around a charcoal fire. Jesus' focus turns specifically to Peter. Following breakfast, Jesus leans in and asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asked Peter a simple question. Do you love me more than these? Some wonder, who are these? Is he asking, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Is he asking, do you love me more than these other disciples? Love me, could be. Or is he asking, I mean, you could just see the scene there. There's fishing gear all around. There's fish on top of a charcoal fire that he's eating. Is he saying, do you love me more than these fish? 
do you love me? You were a fisherman. It looks like you thought you might be going back to catching fish. Do, do you love me more than you love your previous life as a fisherman and what it meant to you, your identity as a fisherman? Do you love me more than that? We're not sure which one of those three did he mean. I could make a case for all three of them. Do you love me? The point is, Peter, do you love me more than anything else? What is your love like for me? He asks him this question three times. Three times Peter responds, yes. And by the third time, he's frustrated as any one of us would be. I told you the first two times, I love you, Jesus. Why do you keep asking? Just consider the intentionality of Jesus. I mean, he is like a, a surgeon going in for the heart of Peter right now. You, you could just imagine the setting there around a charcoal fire, all of this taking place around a warm fire. Just love the attention of detail that John gives this scene. This is no small detail. It's, I mean, just the fact that he says charcoal fire should jump out at us. The reason he includes it is because there's only two times in the New Testament where that word charcoal is used. Right here in John 21 and previously in John 18 when Peter stood around a charcoal fire warming himself denying Jesus. So even just the scene, the heat from the fire, the smell of the coals is going to take Peter back to a place where he let Jesus down. The repetition, it's deliberate. And he recalls that three times that Peter denied the Lord. Peter failed Jesus publicly in the high priest courts. And here, in the presence of his friends, publicly, Jesus restores Peter to ministry, gives Peter a calling, sets for Peter direction in his life, says, Peter, you may have let me down, but I still got use for you. You, you may have denied me and rejected me, turned your back on me, but Peter, I am not finished with you. What an amazing message. This is how Jesus comes to us this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got plenty of things in my life that I can regret, that I wish I wouldn't have done. Plenty of ways, plenty of things that I look back on and I think to myself, how can Jesus use me? How can he use a broken forgetful person like me. Hopefully you guys can relate on some level. Well, Jesus, is, if you can relate with that, the good news this morning is that Jesus is not finished with you. Jesus has purpose. He has direction that he offers to you. He's not finished. What do we have to do? Like Peter did, come to Jesus. He extends the invitation. We receive it. What a savior we have. Jesus follows Peter's response each time with the same charge. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Doesn't change. His response every single time is the same thing. Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep. Peter's taught that loving Jesus involves feeding Jesus's people. What a gentle savior we have. Two, just quick things I want to point out about this specific passage. Jesus, notice how Jesus models for his disciples. 
Jesus, he is the great shepherd and models for his disciples what the role of a shepherd is, specifically feeding his sheep. Before he calls them into service, he models for them what that service would look like. What are their priorities? There's no mistaking that Jesus' top priority, as he models for them, is to ensure that his people are properly fed. Before he tells Peter to go and feed his people, Peter is sitting there with a full stomach. Jesus is the perfect model. He says, follow me. It's the way he ends the section. Follow me. Do it just like I do it, Peter. Secondly, notice this, and this is really key. Jesus doesn't expect us to give what we have not received. Jesus doesn't call us to give what we have not already received. We've talked about this on staff over the last couple of weeks quite a bit. The importance of ensuring that we, as we give out, that we give out of what the Lord has already given to us. As we feed the sheep, we ourselves must be fed by the great shepherd. This is critical to gospel service, gospel ministry. We must not be expected to give out of what we have not received. In Matthew, it's no coincidence that 17 chapters before Jesus tells the disciples, go therefore and make disciples, before he sends them out and gives them the great commission, 17 chapters before Jesus does that, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 17 chapters before Jesus says, go and do. Do you know what Jesus says? 17 chapters before he says that, he says, come and be. If you have hopes, dreams of what the Lord could do through you, first and foremost, I want to applaud that. Praise God for that. I mean, just even as we think about what God can do in and through our church as a people, we should dream about what he can accomplish in this community, through this church. If you have hopes and dreams and aspirations about what you can do for the gospel, long before you do that, you must first come and receive. You must be filled up before you can do anything. This is a vital lesson in any kind of service. He has not called us and doesn't expect us to operate out of an empty tank. Jesus is determined to ensure that his people are properly fed through his disciples, and he begins it by properly feeding his disciples. This is a critical lesson for us to learn. So, quickly, I want to end with two points of application. What do we do with this? The first is this, two things. First is come and feast. Come and feast. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to make it very clear. We are so thrilled that you're here. We're so glad that you're here with us as we worship our Lord. Peter's journey in refreshment, I want you to understand that Peter's, if you're here not a follower of Jesus, Peter's journey of refreshment and restoration started on an empty stomach. He had significant need and he knew it. 
He failed his closest friend in his hour of his friend's greatest need, and now he's out in a boat catching no fish. It's very clear Peter knows he has a need. And the reason Peter threw himself in the sea and swam into the arms of Jesus is because he had come to the absolute end of himself. He needed a savior. If you're here this morning and you have not thrown yourself into the arms of Jesus, my question is, what are you waiting for? His arms are open. The invitation is extended. And he offers to you, he tells us in John 6, the bread of life. And he says, whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. He offers us purpose and direction and eternal life. A promise that can come from none of our, the activity we wanna fill our calendar with, while it may offer that potential, it will fail every time. Jesus provides for you precisely what your heart is longing for. What are you waiting for? Just at the end here, I would invite you if, you, if you would like to come and feast, if you haven't done that already, there's a welcome table out there that there's staff here that would love to meet with you and help you in that process, help you discover who Jesus is. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, this is often a time for us where we, as we consider what does it look like to come and feast, often a time of year where maybe we had hopes at the beginning of the year what it would look like to be in God's word. Maybe we had hopes of what it would look like to, to read through the Bible or to daily spend time with the Lord. And, and oftentimes, this is a time of year where, where we can see those hopes of beginning to slide. And, and maybe we were supposed to be in, I don't know, Joshua in our reading plan, and we're still back in Exodus. And oftentimes, we can think to ourselves, oh my gosh, I messed up. I got to wait till January 1 to start over. Let's not be that type of people, okay? Notice, J Peter blew it, right? And Jesus comes to him and says, come back. Come home, Peter. There is no wrong time to open up this book. If your life is filled with an open calendar, filled with all kinds of activities, my encouragement to you is ensure that your Bible is open. Don't seek meaning in activity. Seek meaning and purpose and direction in God's word. Be fed by God's word primarily. Secondly, I want to just to think about what it looks like we come and we feed from him. What, is it, what does it look like for you to be in the word, specifically daily, okay? Now, secondly, he calls them now to go and feed his disciples. It's very important that as we receive from the Lord, that, we, that this is a natural part of Christian service, not for somebody who's a, who is a, uh, a professional minister. It's not just for staff. It's not just for elders. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is, he's inviting you into his master plan to build his kingdom right here in Iowa City. How do you participate in that? You feast on God's word and you proclaim God's word. That's the plan. And I'm telling you right now, you don't need, uh, anybody can do that. It doesn't matter what age you are. Anybody, any one of us can do that. As we feast on God's word, we also turn and then proclaim God's word to whoever God puts in our path. This is as simple as it gets. So one practical thing you can do, whatever it looks like for you to feast on God's word this week, this is what I want you to do. What God reveals to you from his word, I want you to commit to proclaiming that word to somebody else this week. 
One of the things that we've done on staff over the years, I think Paul maybe was one who I did it with. I don't know if anybody else on staff is here, but this thing called Discovery Bible Study. It's a method for, for pulling out God's truth and obeying it and knowing what God's word says. But one of the key aspects of, of this Bible study method that I just love is that it, it, one of the final steps is it says, okay, based on what you've learned from God's word, who now are you going to speak that to? Who are you gonna share that word with this week? And so for a final practical application, I want us to all be thinking of somebody in our life who we can speak God's word to this week. It could be a roommate, it could be somebody in your family, somebody in your class or in the office, somebody in your neighborhood. Who are you going to speak God's word to? I mean, this is an amazing invitation. Every one of us gets to participate. It's an open invitation for all of us to be a people who feast on God's word and who proclaim God's word and feed his sheep. It's really a remarkable calling. And again, just to end the same way we began, what a savior we have. To think that God, if you're sitting right now in your chair, feeling exhausted, pastor, you just put one more thing on my to-do list for this week. Thank you very much. What a wonderful reminder that God cares about your soul and that you experience refreshment from him from him think of what a wonderful lesson for moms even this morning oftentimes so focused on everybody else in your life that you neglect your own soul if you want to think of something that you can do to care for your wife or your mom here today or some a woman in your life that God has placed that care, you care deeply for, you can ask them specifically, what are you doing? How are you caring for your soul? And help them ensure that that happens. He doesn't invite us to serve on an empty tank. He invites us to come and to feast. And he promises to fill us up. What an awesome thing open invitation, divine chef, a glorious meal, and it's free of charge. I don't know where you're eating at for Mother's Day brunch, but that table sounds pretty awesome to me. Let me close in prayer. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you again for just the opportunity to look at your word. And we ask, Lord, that, um, that you would help us to be a people um, who take spiritual responsibility for one another. Lord, that we ask and ensure that um, those who are closest to us are caring well for themselves and are feasting on your word regularly. Lord, I pray that you'd also give us the boldness and the courage to take the word that you've given us, the refreshment that we have received from you, and to extend it to those around us. Give us eyes that see, just even this week, those in our life who are in need of refreshment. Lord, and I pray that you would give us a word to speak that would encourage them and strengthen them and ultimately point them to your arms. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Friends, will you stand with us as we respond?